Three months ago, the GOP took control of the United States House of Representatives. Today's guest cuts through the headlines and the talking points to help us understand what has changed in Washington since the end of 2022 and what has stayed the same. He's Steve Scully this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also at Salve's Pell Center. This week we're joined by Steve Scully, Senior Vice President at the Bipartisan Policy Center and host of The Briefing on Sirius XM's POTUS channel. Steve, thank you so much for being with us today. So glad to be with both of you. Thank you very much. You know, we, uh, we're going to turn the table, tables on you a little bit here today and, and, and have you answer the questions rather than ask them. But, you know, you've had a remarkable 40-year career uh, in broadcast journalism. I'm wondering if you think back to your earliest days, is there anything about the industry then that you missed that was still with us today? Oh boy, yeah. Um, and look, I, I'd like to think I'm still just getting started. So the industry has changed so much. But again, good to be with you. You know, when I was doing the uh, C-SPAN call-in programs, often it would say, "Long-time listener, first-time caller." So I'm going <laughs> to be a long-time admirer of both of you, uh, the, this program, and, and, and what you do, and a first-time guest. Look, it has changed significantly. Uh, we have a fractured, we have a polarized media. Uh, the good news is there is more news and information out there than ever before. The bad news is there's more news and misinformation out there than ever before. So look, when I first started, cable was very much in its infancy. MSNBC and Fox had not even started. Nobody heard of podcasts uh, back in the early and mid-1980s. And it was a very different media environment. In many ways, it was, it was a good environment because people would have only a couple of sources of news and information. We were all getting uh, th the same material. Now it is very disparate. The problem, I think, is that people need to mix up what I call their media diet. Because what happens, and I, I'm from a very large family, so I have Rachel Maddow on my family, and I've got uh, Tucker Carlson in my family. And it's hard to convince those on one side of the aisle or the other to understand what the other side is presenting. You tend to gravitate towards your own silo, your own media environment, your own uh, person who reinforces your point of view rather than getting all of the information and then making up your own mind. You know, we're in the middle of a still unfolding, I don't know if a scandal or a process of discovery with the Dominion, uh, the Dominion lawsuit and all of these texts that have come out of Fox News really reveals that this is an organization that is advancing a narrative with hosts that are playing characters, not really reporting the news. Um, when you think about the, 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 that aspect of, of, of broadcast cable journalism anyways, you know, is, is this something where there needs to be maybe a revisiting of uh, regulation uh, for the cable industry in terms of what it contributes uh, to, the, to the health of the republic? I don't think regulation, Jim, is necessary. I think that we can sort this out. But look, um, I've had the chance over the years to teach on college campuses, and I devote one of the classes 
to that landmark decision, 1964, Times v. Sullivan. Remember, actual malice, reckless disregard for the truth. And that really is what is the centerpiece of the Dominion Voting System $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox News. And what you have are the words of Rupert Murdoch and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity saying something very different privately than they're saying publicly. And a real concern that it's the audience they're worried about, not the facts. That to me is the fundamental issue at stake. And that is, I think, a, a, a grave disservice to journalism in general. Look, they are opinion journalists. I understand that. But you know, to quote um, uh, many senators, uh, including Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you have a right to your own opinion, but not to your own set of facts. And the facts bore out that it, Fox was right. They called the election first for Arizona. That's right. And yet they were more worried about Donald Trump and the audience. And that, to me, is really, really disconcerting. So, Steve, uh, we're taping this in mid-March, about three months into the GOP-controlled House. What has changed on the Hill, and what is the same? Well, what is the same is if you watch cable television, it's the noise that gets so much attention. The Marjorie Taylor Greens, the AOCs, the Matt Gates, the George Santos. And, and that's fine because that is part of the storyline. What I can tell you is that it may seem bad from the outside, but there are things that are getting done. And I'll give you uh, one example. Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, and the Speaker Kevin McCarthy are actually talking to each other. Now, I know that's a low bar, but the fact <laughs> that they are communicating with each other is a good sign. And the fact that you know Leader McConnell and Leader Schumer, polar opposites, are having the conversations on issues that are coming before the Senate. So they are getting things done. We're, we're getting progress on PEPFAR, certainly the infrastructure bill that passed last year, uh, the debt ceiling, despite all the noise, I really do believe that both sides will come together and raise the debt ceiling. The Bipartisan Policy Center is working with Treasury on when that date will be. I think we're looking probably late summer, maybe August or early September. And again, that will all depend on tax returns and the like. But there are things that, that, that can and will get done, not as much as what we saw in 2021 and 22 because of divided Congress. But if you kind of break away from the noise and look at the facts, I think it would encourage more people who are used to schoolhouse rock getting things done, passing a bill. They are getting things done. So what you're describing is a degree of, uh, of cooperation. Did you expect that uh, after the, the November elections? Is this a surprise to you, in other words? Well, not only the November election, but the 15-round vote of um, Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It is a very divided Congress. And, you know, I, I remember talking to Cokie Roberts, and boy, do we miss her, saying that members of Congress, freshmen and sophomore members, they would you know, sit quietly in the back and, and follow the leaders. Well, they don't need to do that today, to go back to Jim's point, because of cable television, because of Fox News and MSNBC and Twitter and social media. They have a platform that they never had before. And we're not going to go back to those days. So I don't want to be Pollyannish and say, you know, oh, in the good old days, this is how it was done. But the fact is that that because of the environment that we're in today, it is harder to, to cross the political aisle. And there are two big reasons for that. Number one is because of the amount of money being spent in, in campaigns. And number two, let's be honest, gerrymandering, because a, a candidate for the House in particular, but even in the Senate, is more worried about a primary challenge than a general election challenge. And so what is the political incentive for those members? And again, most come to Congress to try to get things done in their own political lane. 
but it is very hard to cross the aisle when you have congressional districts that are carved up more for the primary than the general. So, Steve, if we have this right, you have interviewed every American president since Gerald Ford. And that Correct. puts you... Not that, while they were all in the White House. Some <laughs> were after the White House. I'm okay, but still, that, but this, <laughs> <laughs> this puts you in very, very rare company. What leaps out at you from all of those interviews? You probably could do the rest of the show uh -huh. with highlights, but give us a few. So I can tell you interviewing Donald Trump was very hard because you'd ask one question, he'd go off in 10 different directions and there would be multiple stories out of that interview. Interviewing Barack Obama was a big challenge because you'd ask one question and eight to 10 minutes later, you would get a very uh, professor, professorial answer from him because he is a former law professor. You always remember the interviews uh, with a president, whether they're in the White House or outside the White House. I remember sitting down with Jimmy Carter at his library in Atlanta, Georgia, talking about the Camp David Peace Accords and telling the story about how it literally almost came apart uh, before they reached that agreement in mid-September of 1978. I interviewed Gerald Ford in Philadelphia in 2000. It was the 60th anniversary of Wendell Wilkie accepting the nomination in Philadelphia and a young Republican from Michigan by the name of Gerald Ford was at the convention. He, of course, went on to become member of Congress and then president. During the interview itself, he literally had a mini stroke in Philadelphia. Wow. We're talking about threats from Iran. And then he pivoted to talk about onions. It was really a, kind of a bizarre moment. I had no idea what was happening. It was a TMI. He snapped out of it, shook hands, left, and then later that evening was sent to the hospital because he had another TMI and a stroke. But I, I have to tell you, out of all the interviews, and, and I've, I've done them all, um, one that stands out, and it kind of goes back to our opening conversation, was with President George W. Bush. So let me set the stage. It was the second to last interview that he was conducting before he left the White House. The final interview was with Brit Hume on Fox News. We sat down with him in mid-December. I asked for two things. We wanted to do it in the Oval Office because of the majesty of that room. And I asked for the time not 10 minutes, we wanted more. We had a half hour, which is golden in any time you interview a president. And we got there early, we're set up. Dick Cheney walks out of the dining room with the president and George W. Bush says, you know, Dick, you know Steve Scully and the C-SPAN crew. And Dick Cheney kind of grunted and walked out into the Rose Garden. Bush looked at me and said, I guess he didn't like his lunch. <laughs> that was the lunch in which he said, I'm not gonna pardon Scooter Libby. That came out later in the book. So Ooh. I had no idea what the lunch was all about. But then fast forward, two of my mentors, Brian Lamb of C-SPAN and Tim Russert, on how to do an interview. And so how do you get something different from an interview? You two are masters at this. You want to have a conversation. So what I did is I went back to George W. Bush, mid-December of 2000. We all remember Bush v. Gore, that protracted campaign of that year. He is president because of the 5-4 decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. And George W. Bush in Austin, Texas, said, I want to be the president that brings the country together, that binds the wounds after a deep uh, divisions of this political year and represent all Americans. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. So I asked him a very simple question. I said, Mr. President, what happened? And I had to tell you, it was like, like the air came out of the Oval Office. He kind of slunched back in his chair. He looked around and he said, I guess I was a more hopeful person back then. And think where, we're at, we, where we are today compared to 2008. We were polarized back then. We're even more polarized in 2023.
You know, uh, Steve, that's a that's a, a remarkable story. And I'm often struck by the fact that um, I think a lot of times if you just watch the news or you read the paper, we sometimes forget that the politicians that we're reading about are people too. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes the, the, the face they put on public doesn't reflect the struggles and the challenges that they're facing uh, behind the scenes. And I think you get, probably got a little bit of a glimpse of that in that interview with President Bush. But President Biden also ran promising a return to a more bipartisan, inclusive approach to governing. How's he doing so far? You know, I think, again, if you take away some of the rhetoric uh, of what we're hearing, he, he has two challenges. How does he placate the base, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, and yet bridge the divide? It doesn't matter what he does. He's going to get beat up on Fox News and Newsmax and One America News. It is hard right now in, in, in the hot cauldron of politics to really say, how is he doing? Um, I, I think he is trying to bridge the divide. And, and I got to be honest with you, when Donald Trump was elected president, I thought he also could have done that because he was in a unique position where he wasn't wed to a political ideology. He was a businessman to try to get things done. Ironically, it was Joe Biden who got infrastructure done. Joe Biden, who is now facing the wrath of liberals when it comes to the drilling that now will take place in Alaska for ConocoPhillips. I think he is trying, but I think in today's hyperpartisan environment, no matter what he says, you know, in a recent speech, he talked about, you know, enforcing gun laws, everything within the law and trying to force Congress to pass things. And I was watching on Newsmax and they're touting that, you know, he's trying to take away your guns. It is hard because every word, every, every nuance is parsed. Um, we'll judge, I guess, you know, five, 10 years from now, how well he did. But I think infrastructure is a huge, huge uh, victory. And we'll see the benefits of that over the next eight to 10 years. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS. We know how lucky we are to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Steve Scully who is Senior Vice President at the Bipartisan Policy Center and a veteran political journalist. You can hear Steve every weekday on The Briefing with Steve Scully on Sirius XM's POTUS channel. And if you want, you can follow Steve on Twitter, at Steve Scully. It's spelled just like it sounds, S-T-E-V-E-S-C-U-L-L-Y. So, Steve, <clears throat> excuse me. In addition to your Sirius XM show, you're a senior vice president at the Bar Bipartisan Policy Center. Two, yeah. que two questions here. For those in the audience who don't know what that is, what is the center and what value is there still to bipartisanship? So two questions for the price of one. You, you got it. Well, the, the center began about uh, 18 years ago when Democratic and Republican leaders, including Tom Daschle and Bob Dole, got together and said, in our political environment, we want to have that fierce debate, and then we want to look for compromise to get things done. 
So they created the agency uh, in, in many ways, what we try to do at C-SPAN, which is to present all points of view. So what we look for is where we can find the common agreement on many of these issues. Bipartisanship is alive and well. It is struggling because of what you might see on you know, social media or what you might see on cable television. It doesn't always generate the news and the headlines. But we work really hard on a lot of the issues that affect many Americans, you know, PEPFAR and energy issues and working on the X state for the debt ceiling and immigration, healthcare issues. And how can we bridge the divide between Democrats and Republicans? And I'll give you two very specific examples if I can. The one example, I mentioned Koki Roberts, who talked about how back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, members of Congress lived in Washington. They uh, understood each other's families. They don't do that today. They come in Monday or Tuesday, they leave Thursday. We have a program in which we have Democratic and Republican members of Congress who travel to each other's districts to get to know each other. I just did a town hall meeting with uh, Congressman Bacon, conservative Republican, uh, and uh, uh, Congressman Carbajal from California, a progressive Democrat. They didn't know each other before they exchange each other's congressional visits, and now they're good friends. They don't agree on a lot, but they understand each other. The second thing that we're doing is a Senate project, which is the first one actually took place in Boston at the EMK Institute uh, with two senators, Bernie Sanders, Lindsey Graham. We did a second debate in Washington. We're planning three debates this year. And the goal is to have that debate. We're not trying to, to quell partisan divide. That is what the, the foundation of the country is all about. That's what Hamilton and Franklin and Jefferson in Washington wanted. But also there had to be a compromise at the end of the day. So we have the two senators incumbent sitting senators debate three or four major topics and then at the end are there areas of agreement there may be there may not be but all we want to do is foster that environment where we can bring two sides together or multiple sides together and hammer out agreements when there can be agreements that's that's hugely important work steve i i um you know i i i, I pay pretty close attention to american politics or at least i like to think i do and if I had a magic wand, the one issue that really frustrates me in the coverage of American politics is the near obsession that some outlets and some journalists in particular have in focusing on the horse race, who's up, who's down, which candidate is leading, uh, instead of actually getting into uh, a discussion of the issues and the debates. Now, on your show, The Briefing, I am always amazed at the depth that you get into with your guests talking about the actual issues uh, that are at play in Washington. But why don't more journalists uh, focus on the issues rather than the horse race? Oh, it's very simple. Ratings. I mean, let's be honest. What's going to drive the, the ratings? I think CNN is, to its credit, trying very hard to do just that, to kind of get away from opinion journalism. News Nation is also trying to do that. We do that every day on SiriusXM. You're going to hear Michael Smirconish and Steve Scully and Laura Coates and Dan Abrams and, and Julie Mason. And we all come to the table with different sets of expertise. And look, we all have opinions. But, you know, I'm reminded, and I learned this in journalism school, as others have, don't tell me what you think, tell me what you know. Yeah. And that's what I try to do on the program every day. It's interesting, though, because I do wear two different hats. Uh, I, I took over the program, you know, because of some changes at SiriusXM. They asked me to do the show. So I get up in the morning preparing as a news person what's driving the day, you know, and sometimes 
it is Marjorie Taylor Greene or it is the infighting within the Democratic or Republican Party. We're seeing that right now over Ukraine with Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and then what I would call the Reagan wing of the party. And then I go to meetings in the morning about how we're coming together on some of these issues. And then I go down the hall and do the program for two hours, putting on my journalism hat. And then at 2.05, I'm done with that, back in my office, looking for areas of common agreement. So it really is a, a really interesting juxtaposition. It's fun. It's interesting. It's lively. The days are quick and interesting. But I just thought to myself, well, I'm really looking at this from two different prisms uh, in what I do five days a week. You know, you mentioned the, the split the emerging split between uh, the, at least the Republican presidential candidates uh, and and the Democrats over support for Ukraine. Um, mm -hmm. I, of all the issues that I thought that we would see daylight on between Democrats and Republicans, this was not at the top of my list. Have you been surprised that 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 uh, that that particularly Ron DeSantis and others uh, are are talking about? this about the war in Ukraine as a territorial dispute, uh, that the United States shouldn't be supporting Ukraine? Has, has that sort of uh, positioning by these members of the GOP surprised you as much as it surprised me? It, it has shocked me. Uh, in getting ready for today's show, I was thinking just to that very point. I mean, you, you go back into the 1930s uh, and the 1940s when FDR was elected to a unprecedented third term before Pearl Harbor, and you had the Charles Lindbergh, the America first wing of the country that really did not want to get involved in the war. And then we moved from, you know, the Eisenhowers and the Nixons and the Reagans and the Bush family that really espoused a much more globalist point of view, especially after 9-11. And you can argue about the war in Iraq. But we really are dealing with, I think, a generational shift within the Republican Party. I will be honest, after Donald Trump lost the election, and after witnessing what happened on January 6th, as we all did, I really thought the party was going to move beyond the Trump wing and kind of move into a new generation. Bottom line, we are going from the party of Eisenhower and Nixon and Reagan and Bush to a party that really is having the internal debate between what I would call the Reagan wing, the more globalist view, and the more isolationist view of Donald Trump and now Ron DeSantis. So it is fascinating, and this is going to continue to unfold well into 2024. So, Steve, you, you went to journalism school. You've been a journalist ever since. Um, you started in local journalism, broadcast journalism. But you have had a, a lens and a perspective on journalism in general. What do you make of, of the growing number of news deserts and ghost papers in terms of the effect on local coverage and local democracy? It's dispiriting. Look, I know you worked at the Providence Journal. I just did an interview last week with Jonathan Salant, who was the only reporter in Washington for the Newark Star-Ledger. And I am reminded as somebody who grew up in Pennsylvania, the uh, really, you talk about a news desert in Harrisburg covering state government. And we're seeing that in state capitals across the country. And we're seeing it in newspapers across the country. Look, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, they're gonna be fine. They do great work each and every day. But it is, it is really troubling when the role of journalists is to hold elected officials accountable. And it's now the bottom line of these conglomerates that are running these newspapers that carry more about ads and distribution and not about shoe leather journalism. And it is troubling. It is discouraging. I can tell you, though, Axios and others are trying to fill in that void. 
So in this gap, I think we're going to see others rise to the occasion. But there's no question, as we see newspapers really uh, die on the, on the vines in so many cities across the country, it is trou troubling because that's what our democracy needs. So, Steve, you, you mentioned rise to the occasion. I actually left the Providence Journal after many years in November to become co-founder and with Jim uh, and director of OceanStateStories.org, which is based at the Pell Center. And we launched on February 8th. And we're, we like to think that, you know, we're an example of that non-traditional news outlet. We are, we're supported entirely by contributions from, you know, generous individuals and organizations. We're nonpartisan. We're free. Um, do you think that is the model going forward? We're certainly not alone. I mean, there are, even in just in the market in New England, there are many other groups like ours that are dedicated to local coverage and local journalism. Is that the model going forward as these larger chains get smaller and smaller and close their papers and do other pretty terrible things? It is, and it has to be the model uh, because you're not going to generate the type of ad revenue that uh, businesses and stockholders are going to expect from these news organizations. But in this gap, in this void, and we're seeing it, you know, in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, in my hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania, we're seeing other news organizations kind of rise to the occasion. The, the challenge, though, is do they have the resources and the expertise to really go after what I think good journalists need to do? That is, is the real challenge. Just one side note, because you mentioned uh, being at the Pell Center. My very first person that I met when I came to American University was Senator Claiborne Pell of Rhode Island. He was a speaker my first week on campus. And I was just blown away by his expertise, his grace, his uh, New England charm. And so I just have to add that one note that uh, very first Senator Claiborne Pell. New England and charm may have never been used together before, but I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Steve, Stoic but charming. He, he was he was a remarkable man, uh, yeah. Steve. I uh, we've got about uh, two minutes left in the show here, but the, we need to we need to turn our attention, as distant as it might seem, uh, to the looming twenty twenty four presidential election. Uh, what's your take of the field as it's emerging on the GOP side, and do you have a sense of when? Again, we're taping this in mid March. President Biden might make a decision. So I don't think the president is any rush to announce, uh, but my guess is we'll see it probably in May or June, not before that. Uh, I think he has some things that he wants to accomplish. He's got some significant events coming up in April, including a state visit by the South Korean president. Uh, I do think he's going to face, uh, you know, some minor challenges within the Democratic Party. And again, let's be honest, the, the Republican primary is at the moment a two-person race between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. But it's going to change and evolve. We talked about the situation in Ukraine and how Republicans are really having an internal debate uh, and, and maybe even divisions over foreign policy. So that's really going to drive a lot of this. Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, others in the Republican race. The one thing I would say is keep an eye on how many are in the race leading up to New Hampshire, because Republicans want to take a page, I think, from what the Democrats did in 2020 to make sure there are not eight, nine, 10 candidates that could give Donald Trump the nomination for those opposed to the former president, they're gonna look for ways to try to narrow the field to make it a two or three person race. So that's my one prediction. Who those people are outside of Donald Trump, we don't know yet. Steve, we could talk to you all day uh, and, and folks who wanna hear more from you ought to be tuning in to the briefing on Sirius XM POTUS uh, or following your work at the Bipartisan Policy Center. But thank you so much for being with us. 
My great pleasure. Thanks for what you do and the way we're able to tell stories. So it was a true honor. We, I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Steve. Steve. Uh, that's all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on social media or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.